So yesterday, Judge uh, Togozile Masipa ruled that there shall be absolutely no live social media coverage of the Oscar Pistorius trial. And this morning, uh, the breaking news story is that tweeting and blogging will be allowed. And uh, what else has, has what else can I present to you as a new uh, development? Well, uh, the fact that a summary of the pathologist's testimony um, will be communicated, a wrap-up of his testimony will be uh, communicated. Uh, the media is allowed to broadcast a wrap of our pathologist's testimony uh, uh, at, at the end of the day, provided it is approved by both the defense and the prosecutors. But let's welcome Emma Sedler, who's a social media lawyer, to take us through the latest developments. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure to speak to you and thank you for agreeing. Let's just go back uh, to to yesterday and the decision that the judge made. She sounded pretty unsure to me, especially when it came to the Twitter uh, aspect. And I mean, I'm being presumptuous here, but I suspect she's never been on Twitter. She doesn't understand what it is because even with me, up to a couple of years ago, I didn't understand Twitter. Just three, four years ago, I I wasn't tweeting. So I thought very interesting that here we have the social media platform that is generating so much information, that is a powerful tool to communicate, and those who make policy and decision decisions are probably not au fait with how it works. Well, you know, this is a problem that we see across the board, where there are people who understand social media and there are people who, who don't necessarily. And I think that I really felt quite sorry for the judge yesterday, having to make um, this order. Um, so certainly, you know, it was prompted by the decision that there shouldn't be a live broadcast on television and on radio of the post-mortem evidence. Mm. Um, At that stage, Kenny Oldridge, who's the junior to Barry Rue for the defense, stood up and said, well, if we prohibit radio and television, then it should apply to Twitter as well. Now, Twitter was the the, the only social media platform mentioned. So the judge at that point said, well, yes, it must apply to Twitter. She didn't give us any more guidance than that. And I have to say that I've been absolutely alarmed over the last five years that the issue of tweeting from inside the courtroom hasn't garnered more attention from the judiciary. In other countries, we've seen it become a really, really big issue. And indeed, I've written academic papers on it now for a number of years because it really has been a game changer in the way that courts are reported in South Africa. You know, it really is, it's almost like some ball-by-ball coverage in the same way that I can sit and watch a cricket match, you know, ball-by-ball commentary. Um, I can sit at my desk and follow what's going on inside the courtroom by just finding out which hashtag people are using, um, which journalists are in court for a specific matter. So really gone are the days of what lawyers used to call the watching brief, where you have to sit in court and follow what was going on. Mm. Because it really does allow that sort of live, contemporaneous, coverage from inside the courtroom. And really, that was one of the big reasons that Judge Mlambo, who heard the media application, allowed um, the media, the television and audio, the television and audio coverage of the case was to cure that inconsistency. Um, And he was very, um, he was, he really noted that it was an unfair position that only South Africans who had access to tools like Twitter could follow what was going on. Um, and so, so that really was one of the reasons that, that this other coverage was allowed, was to cure the inconsistency that you could have live coverage on Twitter, but not audio um, or audiovisual coverage. Mm, mm, mm. 
And then, Emma, just in terms of the flow of uh, of information, I mean, gone are the days where a court reporter goes to court and then travels to the office to file their story. It happens right there at that moment, and it's regardless of the content, um, regardless of, 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 of the content of the testimony. This time around, does this set a precedent? I mean, there are people already talking about how uh, because it's Oscar Pistorius, people are not, are not allowed to speak about it, people are not allowed to see uh, the live streaming, and at the same time, if court is open to the general public, not everybody who's in court is, 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 um, is a member of the Fourth Estate. Yeah, so I think that this, there's been some extraordinary development in the media law in South Africa over the last couple of weeks. Now, I appreciate that there are a lot of people who think that uh, the coverage that uh, that the media has obtained of this trial shouldn't shouldn't be there. That you know there are much more important cases that come before the courts. What has happened with this new ruling, allowing this new kinds of broadcast from inside the courtroom, has really set new law. So we can expect other cases in the future to be covered in the same way. It will be, I don't think we're going to go backwards from here. I think we'll see more and more coverage from inside the courtroom. What this really means is that, yes, this might not be, uh, that not everybody agrees that this should be covered in this way, but in two years' time when we have a corruption case or a very high-profile political case, then using this precedent, um, it should really become the norm that cameras are allowed inside the courtroom. Mm-hmm. The, Twitter, the Twitter ban yesterday really concerned me, um, particularly because it's a pet topic of mine, but also because I thought that, you know, we've got to remember that there is a perception in South Africa, and this was really um, noted by Judge Mnambo in his judgment about the media access. There is a perception of rich man's justice, that rich people in South Africa are treated with kid gloves, was the expression used by the judge. Mm-hmm. And that part of the reason for allowing the, the coverage in the way that was allowed was to cure this perception and really to see justice being done. In stark contrast to that, yesterday when the judge ordered a Twitter ban on the testimony of Professor Simon, um, she really did allow a different position to be taken. Because you've got to remember, we've had thousands of cases that have been live-tweeted. The only time in South African legal history where live-tweeting from inside the courtroom has been banned was in the testimony of Ina Bonnet, who mm-hmm. you'll remember was uh, the mm-hmm. wife of the case in the Modemole Monster. Yes. Now, that really was to protect her dignity, the dignity of the person taking the stand. This woman was raped. Her husband hired people to rape her. She watched her son being murdered. It really was horrific stuff. And there, the, the, the journalists were allowed to sit in court, and they were allowed to file at the end of each session, but they weren't allowed to live tweet the testimony. In that case, the judge gave very good um, uh, consideration to what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed, gave guidelines to the journalists. There was no room for for just not knowing what the answer was. Yesterday, when the judge made the ruling that this extended to Twitter, I was under siege from international media, local media. Nobody knew what they could publish. And greater clarity was sought during the course of the afternoon. But really, there was a perception that this case was being treated differently because uh, um, of uh, Oscar Pistorius' status as, as a wealthy celebrity and because this was a white woman at the core um, of the testimony. Mm-hmm. Whereas Anine Boyson's testimony, uh, the, the testimony about her postmortem, that was live tweeted. The Marikana massacre, you know, it never has been the case that um, postmortem evidence has been banned from being live tweeted. So I think that we really need to keep reminding ourselves that, yes, this is a high-profile case, but we can't treat it specially because every time a court makes an order, 
um, then that order becomes a precedent for other courts. Mm. So we really need to remember that this is just justice being done. We must see how the court works on a daily basis. And we mustn't expect there to be any special treatment um, in this case compared to other cases. Mm. And obviously we know why the media would want to have access to that information. But in legal terms, uh, public interest versus the public being interested in um, uh, in, in um, something. Yeah, can I'm you t- so glad you asked this question because a lot of the, t- the comment yesterday was around, well, is there public interest in this evidence? Do we really need to know the gory details? And that was misinterpreted because the public interest analysis is not whether it's uh, you know interesting to the public to share all the gory details. The question is, is it in the public interest to see justice being done? And that, the answer to that is yes. We have this principle in South Africa called open justice. It means that any person anywhere in the land can walk into a courtroom and see what's going on, unless that courtroom is in camera. And there were no applications for this court to be held in camera. So we have this principle of open justice, and that really just means that justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. There is public interest in this matter being reported properly and correctly, and for justice to be done fairly. That is the public interest consideration, not whether there's public interest in hearing the gory details. Mm. So I really am pleased that you asked that question, because I think that a lot of the the concern around the way that this has been dealt with stems from the idea about the test is, is is the evidence in the public interest. The test is is there public interest in the matter being reported correctly? Mm-hmm. All right, we've got a caller here. Let's let, let's just uh, welcome Jodine Nilovo and hear uh, what she has to say. Good morning to you, Jodine. Hi. Uh, I, I really do agree with the fact that there's a lot of content to that we can allow everyone to sit and share. But when it comes to detail like pathology reports and information that really has to be so specific that uh, that we shouldn't really be able to um, sway in any way. It needs to be to the point. It needs to be very factual. I understand why there's no social media allowed uh, at that time, um, and I think that that it, it was a fair a fair judgment. Especially my my career is social media. My um, business, everything revolves around social media. I get all of my my content. I don't watch the TV. I get everything from social media. But I did understand why. Why, um, why that wasn't allowed. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. I think, uh, if I could just answer that, I think that um, the problem was that we're treating this case specially. You know, we've got to remember that there are laws in South Africa that bind us and that we can't make ad hoc rules in special cases. We need to really apply the rules. And if that's the case, that South Africa will take the approach that there will, no, there will never be any live tweeting of testimony of post-mortem results, to protect the dignity of the families of the victims, then that's okay. But that isn't the rule in South Africa. That isn't the position in South Africa. The position in South Africa is that anybody reporting the courts can report on anything that happens inside the court. And actually, as a result of yesterday's sort of ban, I was seeing so much misinformation on Twitter particularly. Mm. You know, as I was walking, because I'm I'm involved in this uh, Channel 199, um, the Oscar Pistorius trial channel with uh, carte blanche, and I was walking into studio last night, and I saw a tweet from somebody saying, the evidence shows that Reva was beaten with a cricket bat before the gunshots. Now, that was definitely not, not conveyed in court in any way. In fact, I believe that the professor was very clear that it was only the gunshots uh, that wounded that wounded Reva. If we don't have mm. good access to what goes on in court, 
then there's a lot of room for speculation and for people to make it up. And that's the danger. And then there's also another school of thought, Emma, that, you know, either you broadcast everything or nothing at all. I mean, if there was just this blanket silence around this trial, mm-hmm. then there would not be this uh, the, 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 this confusion. But if you show some things and then you don't show others. But at the same time, let's remember, I think Judge Mlambo did give the trial court, uh, the trial judge, uh, uh, Masipa, the discretion uh, in, in, in this particular space. The presiding officer must always retain a discretion to manage what goes on in in the courtroom. Um, But that's not an unfettered discretion. It still has to be within the bounds of what's acceptable in terms of the law. So, yes, certainly the presiding officer is the arbiter of what goes on in her courtroom, how things are done in her courtroom. Um, And she she really is the boss. And we've seen her really asserting that authority. The problem is the more orders she makes, she's, she's weaving a tangled web. Um, yesterday, there was another unprecedented court um, order in the morning when the judge said that in the case of public figures, for the duration of the time that they are in the witness box, their images cannot be published in any media. Um, in the case of private people who take the witness box, um, their images cannot be published from the time they take the stand until the end of the trial. Now, that can be months and months. Um, and this, this has never been the case before. So with all these additional rules, we're actually creating quite a, quite a serious web of um, trying to work out what's allowed, what's not allowed, even in yesterday's ruling, who are the public figures, who are the private people? You know, there was very little guidance given about exactly what is allowed and what isn't allowed. So, you know, I've I've been um, involved in media law in this country for a number of years. I've never seen an order like that mm-hmm. where you can't you can't identify the witnesses. Now, I appreciate that these poor witnesses, their lives have been changed dramatically. And Anton Harbour actually wrote a lovely article about oh, yeah, um, about that. how open justice. Um, really changes witnesses' lives forever. And I'll tweet that link now. But I think that, um, I think that you know, I'm afraid it's just the nature of the course. And, and, and as much as the, the, the privacy and dignity rights of the, the witnesses are absolutely important, they must constantly be balanced against the right to open justice. So, um, you know, of course, this is an unusual case given just quite how high profile it is. Mm. Um, but I, I'm very hesitant that we make special rules for this case um, and not for other cases. Let's go to, uh, is it Reverend Chunky in Parkview High? Hi, Rudy. Um, I, I, I understand the concept of open justice. One of the things that concerns me is that we live and have had a, a massive history of violence within South Africa. And to what degree does the court protect people or attempt to protect people where this testimony, if it were to go live, would spring back post-traumatic stress disorder for people who've suffered or people who've been associated with similar violence? Mm-hmm. And who's there to represent them in this case? I stood up to my congregation and said on Sunday, be careful once you've listened to all this because you could find yourself displaying symptoms of PTSD through what's happening and coming out live. Now, that's another aspect of the side of open justice, surely.
Mm-hmm. But at, at the same time, uh, Emma, I mean, we, we, we come from a, a, you know, a, a history where the government decided what we can and cannot see what we can and cannot handle. And there have been signs that our current government in some areas has been trying to do that. So who's the final arbiter? I understand what the Reverend is saying. But then if we give uh, the powers that be authority to decide what we can and cannot handle as a society, then we're going back uh, a couple, uh, 40 years back. Yeah, and I think that we need to know. We need to know what goes on in the world. You know, certainly, I saw somebody tweet it last night to me. Um, if if I was killed, I would want people to know exactly how I died. Now we can't we can't determine what what Reva would have wanted. I'm I'm very sad that that is the case. But I think that there is um, there there is there has to be um, a public interest element in in knowing exactly what happened, knowing the truth. And I think that a lot of what uh, what we've been talking about the last couple of days, we've talking about the various dignity rights of the family members of Reva. Um, they said at the outset of the trial that they wanted to follow it. They wanted to know the truth. This has been a big theme from the Steenkamp family. They wanted, they just wanted to know the truth. Now we saw June Steenkamp in court last week. She decided to go back to Port Elizabeth. Um, maybe she's been following exactly what's going on in the trial um, because she's been able to do so remotely. And maybe she was banking on the fact that she could be at home um, away from the public glare and be watching what was going on. We don't know. We haven't heard from her. But it is another element that um, that, that yesterday when, this, when the camera was shut off, perhaps the Sienkamps were planning to watch and follow the testimony um, remotely um, and they weren't given that option at that stage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, let's go to, is it uh, Sarah in Fawies? Hi. Yes, hi there. Um, Rudy, I've got a bit of a problem when it comes to the media because on one hand, they're talking about special treatment for this case, but on the other hand, they're the ones who opened up a DSTV channel and gave this case such coverage. So on one hand, they're treating it like, why do we not open a case up for a a TV channel up for an invoice and all rape cases and, and broadcast them live? So to me, on one hand, we've got we've got the media saying this is a special case and we must give it a channel and it's all this frenzy about from the media. And then on the other hand, we're saying, no, we must be allowed, you know, it must all get special attention. We must be allowed to, to, to put the facts out there. Okay. Just two points I want to make on that. It was reported yesterday that the Steenkamp family didn't want the trial televised full stop. Secondly, most kids out there today, whether you like it or not, and I know your baby's an angel still, but when they grow up, they're going to have a cell phone. And they're going to be able to get hold of Twitter. My kids switch on the TV and they go to channel 199. They can see what's there. Little kids in a rural area don't have access to internet for school projects. They'll pick up a newspaper. They're in primary school. They can read. All this is put out there and no one is giving a damn about the innocent people that maybe cannot handle what is being put out there. And it's beyond their control to actually say, I don't want to see this. Mm-hmm. All right, Sarah, can I just answer the first one about how you're saying the media says this is not a special case, but at the, the same breath, it is special, contradicting themselves. Um, this would be my answer to, to, to you. It is special because of who Oscar Pistorius is. But the context of saying it mustn't be treated, he must he mustn't get preferential treatment. It's not special. It's no more special and important than anybody else's case when it comes to the administration of justice. So, in other words, he deserves a free and fair trial as much as everybody else. He shouldn't get preferential treatment as far as uh, uh, the, 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 the justice question is concerned. 
But the coverage thereof, yes, it is special because it is Oscar Pistorius and other people's trials don't get televised perhaps because they, they, they don't have the global stature uh, that that that, uh, that he, he has. And I take your point completely. I don't know, Emma, if I've answered that uh, correctly. Because no, when I we say that totally. he mustn't get preferential treatment, we're talking about the justice, the trial itself. But in terms of coverage, he will get the special uh, treatment because he's Oscar Pistorius. I agree with you totally. I think we've been edging more and more towards open justice. So this is the first case that has got the kind of coverage uh, um, that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. But I anticipate that there will be many that follow. For the reasons given in Judge Mlambo's judgment, that uh, it must be used as, a ed- as an educational tool, um, yesterday we asked, has your perception of broadcasting uh, trials like this changed since, since it started? And I think there was a lot of negative um, a lot of negativity when the, the channel was first discussed, when the, when the broadcast was first granted. I think since it started, um, I think people have really been swayed. And certainly, you know, my role is, uh, as a lawyer on the channel is really to educate people, to explain what's going on, to look at uh, inside the, the, the courtroom. You know, we've got to remember that most South Africans have never seen inside a South African courtroom. They have no idea what goes on. And so this has allowed people a glimpse into that, that process. And, you know, it's very different to what we see in the Hollywood movies. So I spend a lot of time every day explaining who the people are, what we're seeing, what does the legal principles mean, who are, who are the people, what's the procedure that they're following, really using it as an educational tool. Because it is very important that South Africans understand justice, they understand how justice is administered, and they actually see it being done. Okay. Um, Emma, I wonder if you've got just a few more minutes for us, maybe five minutes. We've got three more calls to take. Uh, if you can give us a few more minutes of your time, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. Okay. Uh, let's get on 0861 Houses. Morning, John. Jack. Yeah, I remember the company. 702. Talk Radio 702. Lots of great feedback about the discussion. One, Benjamin says, this discussion on the show about the use of live feeds and social media in Oscar Pistorius' trial is very interesting. Fantastic guest. I agree. Really, I'm a law student and I'm very fascinated by what Emma is saying. Another, wow, I appreciate Emma and her valuable insight. As a UNISA law student, all this analysis is fascinating and being able to put together theory and practicality is priceless. That is from Asanda in East London. Thank you so much for the call. Uh, Another SMS, does this mean we do not report a war or a natural disaster? That's a very interesting question, Emma, isn't it? I mean, which information is deemed uh, sensitive? People are asking, uh, is there a legal test for sensitivity? Well, I think that we need to remember that there are various codes which bind the various media organizations. But again, social media has been a total game changer because very little is kept under wraps these days. So you can potentially have a situation where you have somebody who has a huge media following, social media following, tweeting something which cannot be shown by the traditional press. So I think that the sort of the normative values are starting to change. And, you know, it really is something that affects everything. We talked about, um, you know, how the judge, I, I really felt sorry for the judge having to make orders on social media, which she, she clearly um, is, you know, not necessarily au fait with. Um, the same things I see, I do a lot of talks at schools and things like that. And I, I'm trying to talk to parents and to teachers about what their children are up to online. 
and they, um, I'm afraid, just don't have the technological know-how to be ahead of their children. Their children will always be ahead of them. Um, so this sort of what I call, I call it a generational problem, which, uh, forgive me, because it, it is a sweeping <laughs> statement, but I'm afraid I do see it in big companies where the heads of the companies have no idea what their younger employees are doing. Um, in the judiciary, I see it with the judges not necessarily knowing what's going on in court. And I think that, to be honest with you, I think that the phenomenon of tweeting from inside the courtroom started and the judges had absolutely no idea what was going on. You know, um, is that I think when somebody like Mandy Weiner, who, who absolutely brilliantly covered via social media um, the, the, the Kebble trial, um, I think in that case, the judges really were very unaware of what was going on. And I think the judges do need guidance. I think they need to be told um, what is acceptable, what's not acceptable, if they do ever want to sort of introduce a tweeting ban, um, that the guidelines need to be given. Um, and I think that we've seen in other jurisdictions um, very, very clear guidance being given to the judiciary. There are comprehensive guidelines that were issued by the Lord Chief Justice in England about when uh, uh, social media was allowed in the courtroom, always with the presiding officer um, having the ability to, 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 to deny that access. But that guideline, those, those guidelines need to be given um, to the judiciary in South Africa. Okay, Faisal in Mayfair, hi. Hi, hi, Reddy. Mm. Reddy, you know, I think, in my, in my opinion, my, the judge clearly violated my rights to the freedom of expression. And the reason I say it's for two reasons. Firstly, the, the judge nor uh, Professor Seyman provided any particularly good reason why the, the, uh, my rights to the freedom of ex- uh, expression should have been restricted. And secondly, I mean, you, you had two, uh, two court rooms full of people hearing that particular evidence. Why were they privileged to that particular information and I was not privileged? And, um, but I hear my bone to pick with, with, the, with the media. Why didn't they, uh, they have an urgent interdict against this particular ruling? I mean, you know, uh, you know to me, clearly this, uh, this ruling wasn't for the freedom of expression. And why, is, so why didn't the media uh, uh, have their lawyers go for an urgent interdict and, and stop the, the, the judge from, uh, from processing this particular... Uh, why did he acquiesce to that particular ruling? I, I can't fathom that. that so basically, the media should have fought the judge. Uh, that leaves a bad taste in my mouth, Emma. Well, Faisal, I agree with you that many people felt that their rights had been limited yesterday. Um, and I agree with you that, you know, in, in normal circumstances, anybody interested in a case can walk into a courtroom and follow it. Obviously, practically in this case, that's not possible. But, but Faisal really raises a whole myriad of points. Um, I think that the media is treading very carefully. They have been given this unprecedented access, and they don't want to mess it up. Um, they don't want to mess it up for everybody. We saw with ENCA last week, um, publishing during Michelle Berger's uh, broadcasting during Michelle Berger's testimony, a photograph of Michelle Berger while um, while she was testifying. It was an historical photograph from the university website, and they, and they were they really took a lot of flack for that because there was a potential that everybody would be denied access because one person had sort of one company, one media house had sort of overstepped the mark. Mm. Um, so I think the media has been treading very carefully. Also, as much as we want to report on the uh, administration of justice. We don't want to hamper the administration of justice. I think if there'd been an urgent interdict thought yesterday, then it would have delayed the trial. And I don't think that's the media's intention at all, to start interfering with how that justice is being administered, merely to report on it. But the other point that Faisal raises, I think, which was very important, was that the judge's ruling yesterday applied to the media inside the courtroom. Now, we have what we call jurisdictional problems on social media, which means really that what I publish here 
can potentially be accessed around the world and vice versa. So we could find that somebody outside of the country, outside of South Africa, could be tweeting, getting updates from inside the courtroom from whatever source, and using social media to report what's going on, and they fall outside of the jurisdiction of South Africa, and therefore the court order would be very difficult to impose on that person. So, so there are those kind of things. And then, of course, you know, we uh, the channel yesterday on uh, the Facebook channel 199 has a Facebook page, mm-hmm. um, Oscar Trial 199. And yesterday, the administrators of the page actually had to limit the comments that people were making, the public were making, because people were using it to convey what was going on in court, to comment on it. And we'd been told specifically that we couldn't do that. Um, now, the social media in South Africa, the law says that you know, the administrator of a Facebook page is responsible for every word that appears on that page once it comes to their attention. Um, so we really had to take very drastic steps to limit the public even commenting on the Facebook page um, because they were violating this court order um, handed down by the judge yesterday. So I'm very pleased that this order was overturned. I think that it really was a very complicated order to try and enforce. And um, I'm very pleased that we are now allowing tweeting from the courtroom. But then again, I've been following just the the little bit of testimony that we've had so far this morning on Twitter. And what you really do when you rely on social media to report what's going on in court, and it is a very, very good way of following what goes on, but you're still relying on those few people who are lucky enough to have been granted access to be inside the courtroom to tell you the story properly. And they're telling it so comprehensively that in my view, it's irreconcilable. I mean, it, 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 for me, it's, it's, it's irrational to allow that kind of coverage and not TV and audio coverage okay. because you just get a much rawer and more accurate account. Um, you still get all the details on social media, just not in truncated. You know, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to tell a story in 140 characters. Uh, no, absolutely. Emma, we have run out of time, but thank you very much for chatting to us. I hope we can call on you again as this trial progresses. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. That's Emma Sedler, social media lawyer.